Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. tell you what the plan is for the next couple of weeks. This past Wednesday, we finished our study in the book of Proverbs. So the next book that we will be looking at during our midweek services will be the book of Isaiah. And in order to look at Isaiah, we're going to be doing a lot of New Testament cross-referencing, and it will be impossible not to do some eschatology during it. Before we do that, however, this next Wednesday, I will be here, but Steve is going to present a lesson for us on Wednesday evening, so come here and support him. Now, starting several months ago, I began presenting a series of what I called topical messages. Usually, it is our custom here at GCA to go through books of the Bible verse by verse, but we took some time to do some topical teaching. We're going to continue that this morning, but I don't know how many more weeks we will actually do topical messages. 
And then it is my intention, the same way that we revisited the book of Romans, and I, I heard many of you say that it was very valuable to go back and look at the book of Romans again. I think the next book that we are going to look at again is the book of Ephesians because I went back into the archives and saw that it had been more than 10 years. In my mind, we just did that, but we have added new people here at GCA and on the internet since that teaching. And given another decade of dealing with the Bible, I think there will be hopefully new insights. So that is the plan going forward. So what are we going to do today? Well, in March of this year, I was invited to teach at the Sovereign Grace Conference that goes by the name of the Embracing the Truth Conference that meets up in Gladeville, Tennessee. They assigned me a topic, and I put in a lot of work and effort to put together a two-day message for them. I'm not going to preach the whole two-day message today. It's okay. You can settle down. It will probably take us a couple of weeks to get through because even then, I ended up with more material than time. And so I kind of rushed through some of the things. I was assigned the topic of Paul on Mars Hill, which I thought going in, I thought, oh, okay, I know that. And then I began looking at it deeper and I began studying it more. And I found that there was just this great wealth of not only theological information, but this great wealth of historic information that really made the Bible story much richer, much deeper. It really made it come alive for me. Tom was there, and uh, he was very encouraging after he heard it, but then there was no recording of it. And so I decided, well, you know, I've put all the work in. I've put all the effort in, and I would like for there to be a recording on the website. So that's what we're going to do. It will probably take us two Sundays, maybe even three, to get through. But that's what we're going to talk about, is Paul on Mars Hill, which you can read about in Acts chapter 17. So you are welcome to turn to Acts 17. We are going to read the vast majority of that. As we're going through this, remember that it was initially meant to be a lecture. But you know me, preach, teach, teach, preach. Hopefully, you will benefit from it. Along the way, as we're looking at Paul on Mars Hill, we're also going to talk a little bit about evangelism. We're also going to talk a bit about apologetics. Although, you can go to our YouTube channel, and you can see a recent YouTube that I made, a video about apologetics that really was drawn from the notes from that lecture series. So I'm not going to repeat all of that stuff. Otherwise, we'd be here much longer. 
I also know that I have to keep from being boring. I understand that sometimes lectures can get a little boring. I will be checking with you every so often in order to find out if you are still interested. If not, I can close up my books and go home. I know this stuff. I've read it. I've said it. So I will be checking with you. Let's read through Acts 17. And then I think we're going to recognize that Athens during Paul's day was actually remarkably similar to the society that we find ourselves in right here, right now. The culture of today with each new day becomes even more like the very secular culture that we find in Athens. Acts 17, starting right at verse 1. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Then those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, 
and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. So while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer 
But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. That's as far as we're going to read for the moment. Initial observations. The society of Athens and the culture in which we live today is so very similar. The thing that Luke pointed out about Athens is that it was just chock full of idols. We may look back and say, oh yeah, those silly people way back then. Those foolish Greeks and their silly idols, it's a good thing we're in America in the 21st century and we're not like that. Except we also have a society that is just chock full of idols. I don't care if you're talking about sports stars. I don't care if you're talking about rock stars. I don't care if we're talking about religious idols or even ourselves. We just are surrounded by idolatry. Idolatry is anything that you worship, any form of worship that is other than the genuine worship of the true God and him only. It's not enough for you to say, well, yes, I have my other idols, but I hold him as better than the rest of my idols. God demands that you have no other gods before me and that you not form any graven image. Not only does he say, I am superior to all and every, he says, I am the only God. And he is a jealous and a judgmental God. And so it would be wise for us to take the time to decide whether our idols are really worth all that much worship that we give them. Now look, I know that you're thinking at this moment, well, we don't worship them the way we worship God. The way that the word worship is formed in the English language, it is actually a contraction of two old English words, worth-ship. So whatever has value, whatever has worth to you, is what you are going to express worship toward. I have said many times, given my background in showbiz and rock and roll, some of the purest forms of worship I ever witnessed was at rock concerts because all of the elements of worship were actually there. Not only were people praising the person who was the best lit, loudest person in the room, but they would raise their hands and wave their hands. Some people would faint, and they gave them money, money, money. All of those are forms of worship. All of those are saying, you're what I value in my life, where I'm willing to invest myself and my effort and my praise, my laud, my honor on you. I'll even give you my money. Has anybody checked ticket prices on concerts lately? Okay, well, maybe not lately. Since COVID-19, everything's pretty much not happening or free on the Internet. But, I mean, it was at the point where it was 
hundreds and thousands of dollars just to go to a two, three hour concert. And people were paying it because they wanted to be there where their idol was. Oh yeah, here in America, we don't do idolatry. Except that for the last, oh, 10 years, we've had a very popular TV show called American Idol. Yeah, we don't do idolatry in America. We're even identifying it. Idols. We're creating forms of worship for everything else except for God. And remember again, God doesn't just insist on his appropriate worship. He insists on exclusivity. Now, is there a way to enjoy the arts without worshiping the arts or the sports or the music? Yeah, there is a way to do that. Just check yourself. Keep yourself in line. Recognize that God alone is the only one who deserves your worship. All I'm trying to show is that ancient Athens is still right here in our modern society. Some things just don't change because human beings don't change. And for that reason, every society of human beings that human beings have ever made in the history of planet Earth, those societies all have forms of idolatry because human beings are idol factories. In our hearts, in our minds, we want to worship something. And even if we're not worshiping the real God, even if we don't even know the real God, like this story says, they were even worshiping an unknown God, and they didn't know the true God, but they worshiped. They worshiped all the time. They worshiped all these various different idols. Athens was chock full of temples and sacrifices and places to worship. Same deal today. Commonly, when people approach Acts 17, they'll say that it is pretty much solely an example of evangelism, how Paul went in and evangelized people in Athens. And it is true, it is certainly an example of evangelism, but there is a whole lot more going on than just that. As we dig into the details, we're going to see that Paul was also an expert apologist. And I will define those words for you as we go. Paul was in Thessalonica at the beginning of this chapter, and it's a perfect example of evangelization. It says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them into the synagogue to the Jews for three Sabbaths, that means for three weeks, he reasoned with them in the scriptures. Now, by the way, is it worth pointing out that the only scriptures Paul had at that moment was the Old Testament? The apostles had not written. The uh, corpus of what makes up the New Testament had not been assembled yet, had not been canonized yet. And so Paul, as he's making these arguments that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus the Christ had to suffer and then rise again, and then he was proving it from the scriptures, recognized that that means he was proving it from the Old Testament. 
because all of that information is in the Old Testament. When Jesus was walking with two of his disciples on the Emmaus Road, he took the time to show them everything in the scriptures concerning himself. They didn't understand that he was supposed to die, suffer, and then resurrect again. And so he demonstrated it. He proved it to them from the scriptures. And the only scriptures that were extant at that time were the Old Testament. So you can find everything that we believe as the New Testament church, you can find all of that established and defended in the Old Testament. And that's what Paul was doing. And that's why he could go in among the Jews and he could debate these things because they had the same scripture. He had common ground with them. He had a common language with them. He had a common starting place. He was able to say to them, because they so revered their scriptures, that he could say to them, let's look at the scripture. And now they have a common starting place. So, of course, it would be Paul's custom to go into the synagogues. The, the synagogue was a place of assembling among the Jews. As was Paul's custom, he went into them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So when we see Paul in the synagogue, when we see him in Thessalonica, when we see him in Berea, he is actively evangelizing. Now, what does that word mean? We have to go back to the Greek word for the gospel. The Greek word for the gospel is euangelion. That is migrated into the English language and given us words like evangel or evangelical and evangelize. So even when we're talking about evangelizing, what we're talking about is preaching the gospel, promoting the gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel. The euangelistus is the word that is then translated evangelist. So what I want you to understand is that when you say evangelist or evangelize, the word gospel is right there in it. And in fact, to be an evangelist is more accurately to be a gospelist, to go out and tell the gospel. And Luke records that when Paul was teaching the gospel, that he was teaching that Jesus was the Christ, there's the main element. Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, that he suffered and he died, and then he rose again. Those are the essential elements of the gospel. And Paul would go present those elements and then prove them from the Old Testament. He'd prove them from the scriptures. Modern evangelizing doesn't seem to work the same way that Paul's evangelizing did. Paul would go in, state facts 
that he knew facts. We know this Jesus. We know Jerusalem. We know who the high priest is. We know that Jesus was crucified. We know that he was dead and buried. We know that he rose again. Paul actually saw the resurrected Lord. Everything he was saying was just facts. These are the facts. And now you need to align yourself with those facts. And oh yeah, if you need evidence, if you need proof, here's the scripture. But that was what evangelizing was for Paul. These days, evangelizing is more based on emotion, trying to appeal to other people's emotion, or even mixing in your own testimony of what Jesus did for you. You should come to Jesus because let me tell you what he did for me. That's not the way that biblical evangelizing was done. Now, people have asked me through the years, what evangelistic method do you like? I don't like evangelistic methods, nor is there an actual evangelistic method described in the New Testament. But we are told what the gospel is, and we as faithful gospelists are supposed to go out and preach the gospel. That's what evangelizing is is telling the elements of the gospel to people who don't know and then giving them the evidence. And the evidence is already in the scripture. We, modern Americans, have a tendency to evangelize on the basis of love, God's love. You should come to God because he loved you so much. John 3.16, he so loved the world, and that means he so loved you. But not only do you not find the word love in any of the early evangelistic presentations, but the word love doesn't exist in the book of Acts. You can read the entire book of Acts from beginning to end, and you're not going to find the word love. Instead, what you're going to find is the constant presentation of facts. This is reality. This is what's happening. Pay attention. Or in the words of E.T., this is reality, Greg. <laughs> Pay attention to these facts. To evangelize is to tell the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. It is to tell the fact Jesus died. He died at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. It is to tell the fact that Jesus raised again in accordance with the scriptures, which is a phrase that you see over and over again in the book of Acts. So if you're thinking about an evangelistic method and you're following the biblical example, then appealing to people's emotion and trying to convince them that this is all about love, love, love is not the biblical method. Certainly not the method in the book of Acts, as you're seeing all the early evangelists. Instead, what we're supposed to do, if we're following the biblical example, is to state to people the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and that we can prove it from the scripture. That is what it is to be an evangelist. Make sense? Yes. Is it worth pointing out that one more version of modern evangelism that you don't find anywhere in the Bible is that 
evangelism in the Bible does not start with you. It doesn't begin with, what do you think? And does this appeal to you? And this would make your life better. Christianity is not presented anywhere in the Bible on the basis of how it affects you and whether you, of your own opinion, think that that would be a good benefit. It is always about the glory of God. It is always about the worship and praise of God. And it is always about the accomplishment of God through the things that he did through Christ Jesus. So in regard to Paul on Mars Hill, what Paul is doing there is more than just evangelizing. He's also engaging in a form of argumentation because he demonstrated from the scripture to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. That form of argumentation, that form of debate, that form of convincing people is what's known as apologetics. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which is translated apology. And it doesn't mean, I'm so sorry. I mean, Jesus is the Christ, but I'm really sorry about that. That's not the form of apology that we're talking about. The Greek word apologia is made up from the prefix apo, which means from, and then logos, which is words. So from words, it came to mean intelligent reasoning, which is why Luke would compliment the Bereans because they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. And in what way were they more noble-minded? They actually searched the scriptures, the Old Testament, to see whether the things that Paul said were actually so. Because Paul engaged in a form of intelligent reasoning with them, he made a well-reasoned argument to them so that they then were faced with the reality of the facts that Jesus was the Messiah. That word apologia entered into the Greek court system. Ancient courts used to have a legal defense that was known as the apologia. The way that it used to work in classical Greek courts was that the prosecution, which was usually a private citizen, would come forth first and deliver what was known as a katagatia, which was an accusation against somebody. And then the defense that was offered for that person was known as the apologia. Now, like I said, if you want to know the different forms of apologetics and the different ways that the word apologia is used in the Bible, you can go watch the YouTube video. But for our purposes this morning, I just want to focus in on 1 Peter 3 because that is the common place where people go to defend this notion of apologia as a defense of the gospel. Who is there to harm you, says 1 Peter 3.13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled 
but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's the first part of it. Make sure that you have separated Christ, sanctified Christ singularly and particularly that Christ is Lord, that he has absolute dominion and lordship. Settle that in your heart and then always be ready to make a defense, an apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And yet do that with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're being slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So that is Peter's context for saying that we need to be ready to give that defense. We need to be ready to act as an apologist, an evangelist, and certainly that's what we see with Paul. Paul would go in and tell people the basic elements of the actual evangel, the actual gospel, but then he was willing to defend it too. He knew where the defenses were in the scripture and he could argue in defense of what he was saying. So we need to be ready to do that. All right, now I'm going to skip over all this apologetics stuff. Earlier, I said to you that when Paul was talking among the Jews, he had what I like to refer to as the home field advantage because he was talking to people who spoke a common language and they also held the scriptures in high esteem the same way he did. And so he was able to make his argument based on that commonality between him and the other Jews. But when he gets to Athens, he has no home field advantage. In fact, he's talking to people who don't have any Jewish scripture available to them. Now, granted, there are some Jews in Athens who he is going to speak to, but when he's speaking to the Greeks, when he's speaking to the common Athenians who were worshiping anything and everything, he had no common ground. He had no starting place. He had no home field advantage so that he could enter in and say, oh, hi, we have this in common, so now let's talk about Christianity. Instead, he was walking into an environment that was completely opposed to everything Christian. Defending the Christian faith began really early in the Bible, earlier in Acts. We can look at Peter at Pentecost. We can look at Stephen's last sermon before he's stoned. But in both of those cases, the audience is Jewish. And so when we read the responses of Peter to the Jewish audience or the response of Stephen before he was stoned to the Jewish audience, you see them both doing the same thing. They both establish commonality. They both point out the history of Judaism that has led them to that moment in time and they refer to each other as men and brethren because they all have that common Jewish heritage. But again, you don't have that once you get to Athens. 
And so how does Paul even manage to bring it up? How does he even manage to engage the conversation? And by the way, the reason that I point out the similarities between ancient Athens and the society today is that there is a large portion of society today that is in the same boat where we really have nothing in common with them. They don't read their Bible, so we can't go up and say, you know, the Bible says. They don't care what the Bible says. Most of them have never cracked a Bible if they even own a Bible. And so how are we supposed to do this evangelizing work? How are we supposed to get to the point where we can do the apologetic work? Well, that's part of what we're going to look at as we dig into the details and we see how Paul managed to bring their traditions into preaching Christ. All right, so Acts 17.10 says this. That was all introduction, by the way. We're, we're finally digging into the text. So. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. That was always Paul's custom. Start with the people that you have home field advantage with. Start with the people who speak the same language, have the same scripture. Go to them first. After all, it is Paul who tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. So Paul is following the model that he himself has advocated. He goes to the Jews first. He went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. I'm going to say it one more time. Notice that the only scripture Paul had to work with was what we call the Old Testament. The reason I'm bringing that up again is to say you cannot separate the New Testament from the Old Testament, because the New Testament is based on the Old Testament. If you are only preaching the New Testament to people, you are preaching a truncated gospel. You are not telling them the whole story. Part of the amazement that is built into the gospel story is that it was predicted thousands of years in advance, and you find that out when you read the Old Testament. We're going to find it out as we go through the book of Isaiah. You see time and time again where the Old Testament predicts the things that are satisfied in the New Testament, and you cannot separate the two because they are all the writing about the very same God who is doing the very same thing and telling the very same story from beginning to end. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, you find God killing an animal to make a covering for their sin. I mean, it's the same story all the way through. And at the end of the Bible, you get to Revelation 21, and what do you find? The Lamb of God. So beginning of the book, sacrificial, animal to cover your sin. End of the book, 
sacrificial animal to cover your sin. He's telling the same story all the way through the Bible. And so I am advocating for the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what Paul taught. And then notice everywhere that he went and he taught and did his apologetics from the Old Testament. Every time Luke says, and some people believed. Some people got it. Some people understood it. And of course, there was opposition. Of course, everywhere that he preached it, there were people who didn't want to hear it. Same thing today, but by entering into those areas, no matter how difficult, there were still some that God had chosen out, some elect people who could hear it and understand it. And that's why Paul went into these very difficult environments and preached the gospel anyway for the sake of those few sheep that God was still calling to himself. And that's why we still preach the gospel in difficult situations. Because God is still in the enterprise of bringing people to himself. And by the way, the knowledge, this is just free, I'm throwing this in. The knowledge that God does choose and elect some people before the foundation of the world is not a reason not to evangelize. You know, there are those people, we would call them hyper-Calvinists, which means they eat a lot of sugar. <laughs> and they are they're just so hyper, those Calvinists. There are some who would say, well, you know, God is going to do what God is going to do. He has already chosen those people before the foundation of the world, so he's going to save those people, and therefore we don't have to go out and evangelize. We don't have to go out and tell the gospel because God is already going to save who he's going to save. That is fatalism. That is not Christianity. The difference is fatalism is just a blind force moving forward. Kesarasara, what will be, will be. But actual, genuine Christian predestination has a loving God at its core, the heart of God, the intention of God, the wisdom of God, working all things toward a destiny that he has predetermined that is very different than the idea of fatalism. So knowing that God elects and predestines people is not a hindrance to our desire to go out and evangelize. It actually should be an encouragement to go out and evangelize because we know for certain that we're going to be successful. We know for certain that God has his people. He has his sheep. They're out there mixed in with the world. And all we got to do is go out and tell them, and some people are going to get it. Some people, the lights are going to go on and everybody's home. Some people, they're just going to, they're going to get it. But in between, there's going to be a whole lot of people that don't. And you shouldn't let the people who don't discourage you from continuing to go out and evangelize to the ones who do. And we know for a fact that they're out there because God chose them. So yes, faith in Christ, we would all agree, faith in Christ is a gracious gift from God. God has to open people's minds and hearts, give them a new heart, take out their stony heart. He has to unplug their ears. He has to give them eyes to see. He has to give them understanding. We agree with all that, but God uses means. And the means that he uses to accomplish all that is the gospel, is the examination of his word. 
And that's really the only way that people are going to come to believe and not just believe haphazardly, but believe correctly. The only way to teach them the things of the Lord so that they believe correctly is to take them to the Word, always back to the Word. So make sure that your evangelization, make sure that your apologetics, make sure that your defense of the gospel is all based in what the Bible says because those are the means that God uses to draw his people to himself. We know it's the power of God doing it. We agree it's the power of God doing it. Paul is the one who taught us that it is God who does it, and yet Paul spent himself, wrecked himself, put his body in the way of incredible danger in order to go preach the gospel. So Paul actively evangelized, and Paul is the one who tells us everything we know about election and predestination in the New Testament. The reason that we follow the logic of the New Testament about predestination and election is because it was the Apostle Paul who primarily laid out that doctrine, and yet that same Apostle Paul was absolutely committed to nonstop evangelizing. So the two are not contrary. Actually, the knowledge of God's saving grace and predestinary electing will is a greater inspiration to go evangelize. Got all that? Yes. Okay. Have I lost anybody? No. I told you I was going to be checking with you. Am I boring you yet? No. Okay. So then what always happens once Paul goes in and he preaches and the Bereans listen and the Bereans believe. And why do they believe? Because they search the scriptures. So then what happens? Well, there's always opposition. There's always going to be opposition. You shouldn't be surprised when you get opposition. It, it happens anytime anybody goes out and preaches the gospel. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Look, the Jews and the Jewish leaders had a vested interest in stopping the preaching of Christianity. We've talked about this before through the years, but Paul was proclaiming the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. And he was arguing that the crucifixion and the resurrection were all in accordance with the Jewish scriptures and that they were evidence of the factuality of his claims. So to the Jewish leaders, if what he's saying is true, they're out of a job. They're out of a gig and they like their job. Through their jobs, they've become wealthy and powerful and they wield tremendous influence over people. They sit in judgment over people. But if what Paul is saying is true, if Jesus actually got up out of the grave, then their entire authority is pulled out from under them. The rug is pulled out from under them, and they are demonstrated to be exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, you're whitewashed sepulchers. Jesus said things to them like, how are you going to avoid the fires of hell? Jesus said things to them like, you compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you've made him, you make him twice the child of hell that you are. 
I mean, Jesus is just condemning them. So they have this vested interest in wanting to keep him dead and keep the preaching of him being alive again completely suppressed. Because if it's true, they're out of a job. So it makes sense that they would go and try to stop Paul. It's why they would put the early apostles in jail. It's why they would beat them. It's why they tried to convince them to stop that preaching that they hated so much. So then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now, let's talk about Athens, because this is kind of the core of what we're getting at. Paul now finds himself, after being driven out of Thessalonica, after being driven away from Berea, now he finds himself going to Athens. The people that are conducting his travel seem to think that Athens will be sort of a safe place. And so Paul is also sent for the rest of his cohorts to come and be with him in Athens. In every major Greek city, and we're going to have to talk a little bit of geography here, in every major Greek city, there is a part of the city that has the highest elevation. That part of the city is known as the high city. It is the highest place, and usually whatever god was the patron of that particular city, the temple to that god would be on that highest place, that highest elevation. And that's why on the highest elevation place, they had a temple there to Athena, which is why the city was known as Athens, because it's drawn right from the patron god, Athena. That highest point in the city in Greek is known as the Acropolis. That's a combination of two Greek words. Acra, which means height, but that word has actually moved right into the English language. If you know somebody who has a fear of heights, you say they have acrophobia. So in Athens' high city, in its highest elevation within the city, there was a temple there that was known as the Parthenon. And the Parthenon was dedicated to Athena, who was sometimes known as Minerva. Now, as we talk about these various gods, you're going to hear me speak of them by Greek names and then also Roman names because the Romans were a barbarian people. The Romans didn't really have the level of culture that the Greeks had. And so when the Romans took over the uh, areas that were previously under Greek dominion, they really just borrowed Greek culture and then just Romanized it. And that's why to this day we talk about Greco-Roman, Greco-Roman gods, Greco-Roman society, because it began with the Greeks and then the Romans just took a hold of it and gave it Roman names. So the Greek pantheon of gods and the Roman pantheon of gods 
is almost identical to each other. They just have different names, but they're still the same gods doing the same things. So this Athena was known as Minerva. That English word Parthenon comes to us from the Greek word Parthenos, which means a young maiden or a girl. It can also mean a virgin. That name has been applied to Mary herself, Parthenos Maria, as the Virgin Mary. The Parthenon is also known as the temple to the virgin goddess. Athena is the goddess of strategy and tactics and handicraft and practical wisdom because the Greeks are really, really big on reason and man-centered wisdom. And Paul even writes about that. We're going to make several references to other things that Paul wrote later in his life after having visited Athens because I think this visit to Athens really had an effect on him. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read, the Jews require a sign to believe. And that's true. The Jews were always demanding of Jesus, show us a sign. Demonstrate that you are who you said you are. Do a sign. Which is why Jesus would say, a wicked, adulterous generation requires a sign to believe. The Jews wanted to see a sign. And the Greeks, says Paul, seek after wisdom. So he made that division. To the Jews, they needed a sign to believe. But the Greeks required wisdom. And then he's going to demonstrate how Christ satisfies both of those requirements. He says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, that's a stumbling block, unto the Greeks, who want wisdom, that's foolishness. But unto them who are the called, both of the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is both the power of God, for those who are looking for signs, and he is the wisdom of God for those who require wisdom. And so it makes sense that in Athens, they would worship the goddess of wisdom. Inside the Parthenon, there are three enormous statues, one of gold, one of wood, one of ivory, and they're all to Athena, whom the Athenians considered to be the patron goddess of their entire city. Now, those enormous statues of gold and wood and ivory don't exist anymore. If you go to Greece, if you go to Athens, and you go visit the ruins of the Parthenon, those statues don't exist anymore. But it does exist in Nashville, Tennessee. How weird is that? Have you been there? It's a tad awe-inspiring, isn't it? I mean, just the size of the thing, just the size of the statue. She's standing there with Nike in her hands. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. It's pretty impressive. You can see where if you had just passed through those gigantic doors and there was smoke filling the temple and musicians playing to that statue, you can see where there'd be a reverence and awe, a sense of, whoa, this... This must be our goddess, I guess. Well, across from the Parthenon, about 50 yards, there's this high rock that has a flat top. And on it is a temple dedicated to the god of war. 
the god of war goes by the Greek name Ares, which is why that place is called the Areopagus. That English name actually came to us from the late Latin. It's a composite form of the Greek name Arios Pagos, which means the Ares rock. But because Ares also has the Roman name of Mars, it is also known as Mars Hill. And that's why sometimes we talk about Paul on Mars Hill. So you've got the Parthenon on one side on the highest place. Across from the Parthenon, you've got this high, flat rock on which is a temple to the god of war known as the Areopagus. But that word Areopagus actually has a history behind it, and so it came to mean more than just that flat rock. The Areopagus is a place name for that hill just northwest of the Acropolis in Athens, but it also is a historical term for a judicial council whose members are called Areopagites who used to meet on that hill. And the reason that those judicial councilmen used to meet on that particular hill was to be the guardian of the laws and to keep watch on the magistrates according to Aristotle himself reaching all the way back to Aristotle, who explained the purpose for the Areopagus. He said that the council was the guardian of the laws that kept watch on the magistrates to make them govern in accordance with the law. So when you see the word Areopagus in, in the book of Acts, you can be talking about the flat rock. But you can also be talking about the men who gathered on the flat rock. And that's why Paul was taken to tell his gospel, his new preaching, among the Areopagus. Not just on a rock, not just standing there by himself, but actually among the council of leaders who led the city of Athens. And part of their charge was to make sure that every new religious idea that came into Athens was suitably uh, examined by them. Which seems funny to me because they were really just so broad in their acceptance of every new thing that ever happened under the sun, and yet they had a council of men who wanted to make sure that nothing sneaky got in. One more place you need to know. There's a place that is north of all that that is a place of meeting, a place of gathering, that is known as the Agora. By the way, that word has also entered into the English language. If you never go outside because you're fearful of being among people, you're said to be agoraphobic. So we still know those words. We still understand those words. The Agora was the marketplace that Paul went into initially to talk to other Jews, and then we read to talk to anybody who just happened to be there. So if you're on Mars Hill, if you're on the Areopagus, you can see the Parthenon on one side, and you can see the Agora on the other side. And that's where Paul stood, centrally located, preaching Christ.
Acts 17.16 tells us. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Okay, so how full was it? You might be thinking at this moment, okay, now they couldn't have had like an idol on every city block. How full was it really? How many actual idols? How many actual temples? There was a Roman satirist by the name of Petronius who once said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than to find a man. That's how many gods there were in Athens. So you can see why Paul, being a thoroughgoing Jew, who knows the commands of God, and who knows the command you'll have no other gods before me, who knows the command you won't make any graven image, you can see why he would stand in the midst of that and be sick in his heart. Which is what's being described here. His spirit was provoked within him because he was observing the city full of idols. And Athens is chock full of these kinds of temples. Athens was the heart of ancient art and ancient philosophy. And when folks would come to visit, they'd be just awestruck by the beauty of it and the wisdom of it. A remarkable city, and yet Paul has the exact opposite impression. He walks in, and he is just sickened by it, sick in his heart over it. So Paul begins reasoning with people about the idols. Basic apologist. He walks in, according to verse 17, and he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace. What would that place be? Oh, good, you are with me. He was reasoning in the Agora every day with those who happened to be present, which means with some of those people, he had home field advantage. With some of those people, he could say, wait, 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 wait. You're living in Athens. You've got all these different idols around you. You're surrounded by it. Let's examine the scripture and see what it actually has to say about having no other gods before me. But then he goes into the marketplace, and he starts talking to whoever happens to be there. And he's got nothing. He's got no way to start that conversation. He's got no entrance to them. So what does he do? He goes out and just tells them facts and just leaves it there. Just, these are the facts. You don't know what you're doing, but there is a God, and Jesus is his son. And Jesus lived in Jerusalem. You know Jerusalem he dwelt among us. He did miracles. He died. He suffered. He was nailed to a cross three days later, up again, alive again. All of those were facts. And that's what he used when he went out and evangelized. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Also, there were some Epicureans and some Stoic philosophers that were conversing with him. Okay, now let me just explain to you. That's about 180 degrees opposite what Paul is. I mean, talk about no home field advantage. I mean, he's talking to people now who are absolutely committed 
to ancient philosophical ideas and structures that have nothing to do with the Jewish religion. Stoics and Epicureans are the only schools of philosophy that are actually mentioned in the Bible. These are passionate rivals with each other who were both profoundly skeptical about any human ability to come to actual ultimate truth. Okay, now it is 12 o'clock, and you know what that means. It means, shut up, Jim. That's what 12 o'clock means. Am I... Hmm? We're just getting started, I know. We're just beginning. Are you bored yet, or do you want to know who the Stoics and the Epicureans were, and then we'll call it a morning? Yes. Keep going? Yes. Do you speak for the group, Leon? Yeah, you do? Okay, Leon has committed all the rest of you. It'll only take you another five minutes. But do you know who the Stoics and the Epicureans really are? We use that language to this day. But do you know who they actually are or how they began? Well, like I said, both of them were really skeptical about the human ability to come to ultimate truth. And so... At this moment, when Paul is walking in Athens, philosophy was just in a general decline in Greece because if the philosophers could actually solve the question of ultimate reality, then they would have done it by now. And so as a consequence of not having any ultimate answers, then people really weren't convinced anymore by their philosophers. So skepticism and cynicism were kind of the order of the day because truth, they all agreed, can't be known. And that's why they were always looking for greater amounts of wisdom to try to explain the ultimate purpose and meaning of life and truth, but they all agreed that philosophy wasn't doing it for them. So. The Stoics actually comes from the Greek word stoikos, which pertains to a member of or the teaching of a school that was actually founded by a guy named Zeno, who lived 334 to 262 BC, and it was characterized by very austere ethical doctrines. The name actually literally means, when you say Stoic, what you really mean is Pertaining to a porch, believe it or not. Yeah, I know, kind of surprising, huh? Because it was on a porch, it was on a portico that this Zeno used to do his teaching. And so people started thinking of, of it as the teaching from the porch. Actually, it was a painted porch that was in the great hall at Athens that was decorated with frescoes can, that depicted the Battle of Marathon. And so he taught them that the only way they could really know ultimate truth was that they had to live very austere lives. Stoic thinking is, you're never going to know actual ultimate truth unless the way you live and the way that you find happiness in this world is to achieve what they referred to as philosophical imperturbability. And I'm happy to have gotten that out of my face. <laughs> Philosophical imper... Im See, can't do it. I should have stopped what I was... I should have. 
I should have quit right there. Philosophical imperturbability means that the world is controlled by impersonal mechanical forces and chance. So we have no control. We're just victims. What I was talking about earlier about blind fate. What will be, will be, and there's really nothing you can do about it. So the only place that the human will has any power is in how each individual chooses to react to the things that befall them. But life itself is ultimately meaningless, and so you become indifferent to pleasure or pain. That's what philosophical imperturbability is. That's why to this day we think of stoicism. And when you see somebody who doesn't seem to have any real emotion, you'll say they're very stoic. Well, that's where that comes from. They are very much like a painted porch. <laughs> On the other hand, you have the Epicureans, who are the followers of a philosophical system that was created by a guy named Epicurus, who lived from 341 to 270 BC. He was devoted to the exact opposite of Stoicism. He was devoted to pleasure. And in fact, the term that is most often associated with Epicureanism is hedonism. But we still use that word Epicurean to this very day. Somebody who really loves living life, especially somebody who eats all kinds of things, we refer to them as Epicureans. There are still cookbooks and TV shows. They use the word the Epicurean because it, it denotes somebody who just experiences life to the fullest. But hedonism is actually a pursuit of pleasure and delight and enjoyment. Hedonists are defined as one who regards pleasure as the chief goal of life. A hedonist believes that pleasure ranks as the highest good. An Epicurean identifies this pleasure with the practice of virtue. In other words, the good and the true can be discovered by serving pleasure and avoiding pain. In other words, if it feels good, then it is good. Pursue the pleasure, avoid the pain. Sound familiar? That kind of Epicureanism runs rampant in our modern society. If something is painful... It's bad. If something feels good, it must be good. And so now here you've got Paul, who has been through remarkable punishment and stoning and banishment and imprisonment and everything else that he's going to go through, a day and a night in the deep, all the stuff he's going to go through, and all of that is pain, and yet he says that he is grateful that he's counted worthy to suffer that pain because it aligns him with the pain that Jesus Christ went through. So he sees pain in a positive sense. Well, that's the opposite of the Epicureans. But Paul also speaks about the joy and the pleasure of life and how he has joy in life because of Jesus Christ and because of his forward thinking and because he understands the meaning of life and the wisdom of life. And that puts him at direct odds with the Stoics. And the Stoics and the Epicureans are at odds with each other. Nobody's getting along here. And yet, to put overmuch emphasis on it, that's the environment in which Paul preaches. Paul preaches. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's really, truly, genuinely remarkable. Now, by the way, there is a third philosophical category. These people are known as the cynics. Oh, gee, do you think they still exist? Actually, they believe that virtue is defined by nature and true happiness comes from releasing yourself from the trappings of life and living at one with nature. Now you know they really exist. They were normally, by the way, history tells us that they were normally filthy, unbathed people. (laughs) And they're gathering in Seattle. Okay, that won't make it to the internet. (laughs) That that won't get... (laughs) Okay, it might make it. We'll finish with this. So some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, says verse 18, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Memorize this word. Use it in a sentence later on. You can use this word to insult people, and they won't even know you're making fun of them. The actual word that they used to him was the Greek word spomologos, which means technically a seed picker, like a crow or a chicken. They said, what is this seed picker going to say? And because it's that kind of trifling talk, which is what it's getting at, that word seed picker means somebody who's a sponger or a loafer or a babbler, Somebody who's pointless, somebody who doesn't have anything significant to say, because after all, they're the philosophers, they're the Stoics, they're the Epicureans, they're the well-studied, they're the people who are still seeking for the ultimate meaning of life, even if it can't be found, and then this guy shows up, and people are listening to him, and people are following him, he must just be a seed picker. So let's go see what this seed-picking idle babbler wishes to say. And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange gods, strange deities. This is a city packed full of strange gods and strange deities, but he has brought in one they haven't heard of before. And so they say, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection So for that reason, they're going to say, let's drag him off to the Areopagus and let's examine him and let's see what he's got to say for himself. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Have I bored you? No. All right. Questions about this morning, what you've heard so far. Now, I'm counting on you to retain everything you've heard this morning because it's all going to come into play next week. Yes, sir. The criticism from the Roman that it's easier to find a God in Athens than it is a man is probably just as much a criticism of the men in Athens, which applies largely to America today and the various forms of snowflakes. (laughs) Yeah. Just saying. Just saying. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, sir. So I took a philosophy class in college which was more a Christian apologetics class than philosophy, although we did cover, at least in brief, all the philosophers from, literally the name of the textbook was from Thales to Dewey. The professor pointed out 
the important points of each philosophical system and said there's one thing lacking in every one of them until we get to Augustine. And that is, you have all these things you're supposed to do, but you don't have the power to do them. And Augustine finally pointed out, no, you don't have the power to do them. God has to do it for you. And so that's why all the philosophical, philosophical systems were failures. Yeah. Philosophy, by and large, the enterprise of philosophy, is explaining the meaning of life, why we're here, what ultimate truth is, in the absence of God. They don't start with God as the fundamental premise. They start with human reasoning, human wisdom to explain all of reality. And so Paul standing against a couple of philosophers is really interesting. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.